Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast. I'm Keith Caulfield, Senior Director of Billboard Charts. And I'm Katie Atkinson, Billboard's Deputy Editor Digital. Hi, Katie. How are you? Hey, Keith. I'm great. How about yourself? I am okay. I'm recording from a different location this time around, so if the audio sounds different, it's, I'm in a different room. So mysterious. Acoustics. <laughs> Who knows? Um, hopefully, I don't sound like I'm underwater. We, we shall hey. soon find out. Um, well, as always, the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got chart news about how Cardi B's new single, Up, debuts very high up on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, (laughs) how the weekend's greatest hits album, The Highlights, arrives on the Billboard 200, and does something no other hits album has done in more than a year, and why One Direction's Up All Night album returns to the Billboard 200 after five years. Ooh, I don't know the answer to that, so I'm excited Uh to hear. (laughs) Plus, we'll be talking about Taylor Swift releasing her re-recorded Taylor's version of Love Story and announcing that her fully re-recorded Fearless album is on the way with six never-before-heard songs. We'll also take a look at other artists who have re-recorded their material in the past and why they did it, so stick around for that. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast provider so you won't miss an episode. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit billboard.com podcasts. Okay, so let's do the chart chat. First up on the Billboard Hot 100 songs chart, as Olivia Rodrigo's driver's license stays put in the driver's seat at number one for a fifth straight week, Cardi B's new single, Up!, makes a grand entrance on the chart, starting at number two. The track bowed on February 5th and launches with 31.2 million streams and 37,000 copies sold, both in the week ending February 11th, according to MRC data. It also bows with 14.9 million in airplay audience in the week ending February 14th. It also starts at number one on both the streaming songs and digital song sales charts, and at number 50 on the Radio Songs chart. Altogether, it's Cardi's eighth top 10 hit and follows her number one single, WAP, featuring Megan Thee Stallion, which spent four weeks at number one last August and September. Staying with the Hot 100, The Weeknd doubles up in the top five, following sales, streams, and airplay generated after his Super Bowl halftime performance on February 7th, as Blinding Lights holds at number three, while Save Your Tears rises to a new peak, climbing 8 to 4. Also in the top 10, Pop Smoke's What You Know About Love reaches the top 10 in its 23rd week on the chart, as it bumps 13 to 10. It's the late rapper's second top 10 hit following For the Night, which debuted and peaked at number 6 last July. Over on the Billboard 200 Albums chart, while Morgan Wallen's Dangerous, the double album is steady at number 1 for a fifth straight week, Wallen also sees his previous album, If I Know Me, reach the top 10 for the first time, as the 2018 release rises 17 to 10, beating its previous peak of number 13. Isn't that adorable? Um, <laughs> that is so crazy. It's, it's, it, it is crazy what has happened with him on the chart since the TMZ video of him saying the N-word. I just, it is crazy. Uh, 
I I think it's one thing to want redemption for somebody. I think it's quite another to go out of your way to push extra support toward them after such a video emerges. Yeah, the, so. the If I Know Me album had its best sales week ever as well. So Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Well, um, well also in the top 10 on the Billboard 200, The Weeknd's new Greatest Hits album, which Katie and I talked about a whole heck of a lot last week. Uh, it's called The Highlights. Debuts at number two. Foo Fighters' new studio album, Medicine at Midnight, debuts at number three. And rapper Poo Shiesty bows at number four with Shiesty Season. I wonder if hi- Poo might have a moment to reconsider his stage name. <laughs> Um, well, I don't know. He's had a lot of time already, I would imagine. Yeah, no, and he's doing very well for himself. So, yeah, stick with it. Obviously, it's working. I don't know. I mean, there's always time. <laughs> Winnie the shysty? Winnie the poop? <laughs> yes, nope. please. Nope. Um, all right, well, The Highlights is the highest charting greatest hits album in over a year since Blake Shelton's fully loaded God's Country debuted and peaked at number two in December of 2019. While Highlights is also The weekend's seventh top five charting album, which is the entirety of his charting efforts on the Billboard 200. The album also debuts at number one on both the top R&B hip-hop albums chart and the top R&B albums chart. That is uh, one thing we left out of last week's discussion is that country artists are not afraid of greatest hits albums. They, yeah. they, they are happy to do them when they are considered still relevant. Uh, I, and I, I applaud them for it. Yeah, my, when I when we were when I was doing the research last week for um, the greatest hits show, um, I stumbled across the fact that Luke Bryan has a recent greatest hits that is exclusive, I think, to Walmart. Yep, which is, is odd. Yeah, and I think that I've seen greatest hits albums at Cracker Barrel that are exclusive to Cracker Barrel too uh, from country artists. So yeah, it's it's totally a thing. Um, well, uh, as for the foos and poo. Uh, Medicine at Midnight is the ninth top 10 album for the Foo Fighters, and Shiesty Season is the first charting album ever for Poo Shiesty. One last thing about the Billboard 200 this week. Down at number 82 on the chart, One Direction's debut album, Up All Night, re-enters the list, making its first appearance on the chart since 2015, and with its highest rank since the January 18th, 2014 chart, when it was at number 70. Well, why, you may ask? Well, I do ask. Good. I'm glad you asked. I'm here to provide answers. Um, It was released on vinyl for the very first time on February 5th, exclusive to Urban Outfitters on green translucent vinyl. Uh, It sold a little over 7,000 copies on vinyl, which is basically all of its album sales for the week, and debuts at number two on our vinyl albums chart behind the new Foo Fighters album, which sold like 23,000 copies on vinyl. So. Wow. There you go. Uh, Katie, did you pick up your green translucent vinyl yet? I'm assuming no, since you just found out about this. Correct. I just found out about it. I I do not have a way to play vinyl, but I do love a fun little chart stat like that. So your eyes glaze over when I talk about vinyl so passionately on the podcast. No, I think it's fascinating to follow vinyl trends. I just don't have a way to play my own vinyl. (laughs) Spoken as a good neutral editor. There you go. (laughs) Now it's time to talk about Taylor Swift, because on Thursday last week, she announced on Good Morning America that her version of Love Story, her new re-recorded version, which was first previewed in last year's Ryan Reynolds directed Match.com ad, would be coming out the next day. It has since arrived. And 
that the re-recorded Fearless album would be her very first re-released album. And then fans deduced from her message on Thursday morning and Billboard has since confirmed that it will be released on April 9th, the full album, including six new songs that were recorded or I should say that were, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Conceived of during the Fearless sessions and now are going to be included on this re-record um, oh. of, of the album Fearless. You know, fun fact that I just uh, sort of went through that. April 9th, that's 4-9. Four, 4 plus 9 is 13, her 13. favorite number. 13, not a mistake. That's not, not a mistake, mistake, Keith. I'm assuming Nothing April is. 9th is a Friday. I hope it's a Friday. That's a good question. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, okay. uh, let's see. Four, April 4th is Easter Sunday, so yes, the 9th is a, is a Friday. There you go. Um, so um, this brings up a lot of questions. I think the first question that I would love to dive into with Keith is... Why is she doing why, this? Why fearless? Well, we can just we can go with the basic. Why is she doing? Why is she re-recording all of her material? We'll just get that out of the way. She's doing it because uh, her uh, masters, her uh, catalog, were purchased by um, a a company with Scooter Braun, Ithaca Holdings, which has since changed hands again. I believe somebody else oh. now holds her masters, um, also with Scooter as well, um, and she doesn't want to make money for those master recordings anymore. She wants to kind of prove a point about how artists should own their art by re-recording all these songs that she made almost entirely on her own and put them out in the world on new versions that her fans can consume without putting any money toward those master recordings anymore. Okay. Raising yes. my hand. Um, yes. So just to clarify mm-hmm. the, it is not all of her work. It is her recordings that she did for big machine records, which goes up through the reputation album. I think Correct. that's right. Okay. Lover was her first one post that era. So all of her stuff up through there, she has said that she is going to re-record because she does not want to have her recordings that are not owned by her make money for some other people that may or may not be affiliated with scooter Braun and folks correct okay. and to be fair she still would make she still makes money she was off still gonna her. make money off of them yeah. anyways but she'll make more money off these ones <laughs> right <laughs> because well, this yes. will be a hundred percent her okay got it and, and by the way she the since left big machine records she left big machine and she signed a deal with republic records and that's her first album with with republic was lover and then she's put out folklore and evermore since then Correct. And so when she first said that she was going to re-record all of her albums, it might have seemed like, okay, but when? She's a busy woman. She's clearly releasing albums at a rapid pace, you know, last year. And then we have the pandemic, everybody, and you've got all sorts of time on your hands. And all of a sudden she has time on her hands. But, like, it felt not that Taylor ever says anything without intention behind it, but it didn't feel like it was going to happen this quickly. And then here it is, like, we have our first product. But my biggest question to come from her announcement is why fearless because it's actually that is not her first album her first album was her self-titled album fearless was her second album had the huge massive breakout hit love story on it um and which is the first release from it but keith like why do you think why do you think she chose fearless as she said why she chose fearless no i mean i think that she i don't think she explained why she chose fearless over doing it chronologically I mean, I think she's talked about the importance of Fearless to her and her fans, but um, yeah, Maybe, it's. It, um, I just assumed it was because it was such a huge album. It was number. It was yeah. her first number one album on the Billboard 200. Um, 
I was kind of thinking I just too. It was just because it was such a, a humongous album, and she's she's like, I'm sure she'll say, "Well, I never said I do them chronologically." Yeah, <laughs> but I also feel like I feel like it's possible that her self titled debut album, what might be one of the most difficult to re record, as far as like the material being, you know created when she was 15 released when she was 16 or whatever and like she her voice has changed so much i'm sure uh there's even a song that has changed on streaming services because it used the word gay in a derogative manner and she actually changed the lyrics on that in streaming versions so i guess she'll do the new version of that i'm just saying it's probably the furthest from her you know mental space as a 30 year old woman now maybe so, yeah. um, okay. So that's, it's interesting. I'm excited to hear it. It's, we got our first taste of it with love story. Um, to me, I think the most notable thing about it was how pretty much it sticks to the original map roadmap here. Yeah. It, if, if you are not a Taylor Swifty, Swifty <laughs> and you're just casual fan, I don't know if you would immediately pick up on the differences because it sounds like the intention was that it was supposed to sound like the original. Yeah. And you can read on billboard.com an essay by our colleague and pop shop co-founder Jason Lipschitz about like sort of how revolutionary this new version is, because I think he is that big of a Taylor Swift fan and there are changes. There's like, you know, there's more, uh, like strings up front than there were in the original one. There there are things that are different, but it's pretty much like, you know, if somebody wants to use it in a movie, no one's going to be like, Oh, that's the new version, not the original. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, I heard subtle, I mean, I heard subtle changes where I'm like, well, it feels like the backing vocals are a little bit more buried this time around. And it feels like the fiddle is a little bit this like, but yeah, all the elements are kind of there, but then again, that's like, you know, asking Jason about Taylor Swift is one thing. You ask me about Madonna, if Madonna re-recorded something, I'd be like, oh yeah, this sounds like total bullcrap. I mean, I, I would be able to tell you, and you'd be like, yeah, I don't know, Keith, sounds like the same damn song to me. At the 52nd mark, she does not make the same ad-lib that she did. <laughs> Look, we can get in a whole discussion about this on another show. Okay, fair enough. Um, So, another question, looking outside of the world of Taylor, is whether this is an unprecedented move uh, re-recording your catalog like this? And the answer is no, it's not no, unprecedented. Maybe it is for exactly somebody. it's not exactly something anyone does on the regular. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's a huge undertaking, but yeah. uh, you know, one of the examples that Keith brought up was uh, a recent example was Jojo doing this mm-hmm. in 2018. Um, what was, what was the scenario there, Keith? Her, her first two albums were on black round records and by the way, Black Round also had Aaliyah on their label. And Black Round just had this really sort of checkered history with, um, you know, not putting stuff out on streamers and digital services for like, you know, you can't for like the longest time. I don't even know if a lot of all of Aaliyah's catalog is out on streamers yet. But JoJo's recordings were never on digital services. And I think she just got fed up with it. And she's like, all right. I'm going to do my own versions of the albums. And she decided to re-record her first two albums. Never mind the fact that she's now a grown woman. And when she recorded her first two albums, she was a teenager, like a very young girl. Even younger than even younger than Taylor Swift when she was first out. Yes. So she re-recorded them and released them 
on her own, but through Warner music somehow. So now it was kind of the same thing she did with Taylor, where now she owns these recordings. I think she does. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. But I mean, it's now she's generating revenue off of these recordings that she decided to redo. And they sound quite similar to the original versions. Granted, her voice sounds a lot older now, but she still it sounds sounds pretty cool. Well, and in that case, it was like a straight up service to her fans who could not stream the things before that, you know, like, yeah, you can but, still I mean, access the Taylor Swift catalog. To, to put <laughs> a pause point. on this, though, yes. I mean, it still feels like when you re-record something, it's still a re-record. It is not that it is not that original song that you first heard that you as a fan made memories with in your head or you danced that first dance to or you did whatever you did too. It's not the same song anymore. Despite the fact that both Taylor and Jojo made songs that sound similar, they're simply not the same recordings. And I, I'm yeah. sure that's not lost on either of them. Yeah, but at the same time, you think about like, it's like we like to hear these people perform these songs at concerts and, you know, on award shows and stuff. So it's just like another new version of it that we, you know, it can still have sentimental meaning, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I hear okay. what you're saying, though. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some other examples. Um, let's talk about Prince. Okay. Prince is Prince is fascinating. Um, uh, he did a new version of a song at an appropriate time. It was the song 1999, which he re-recorded in 1999. Now, Why so if did he was he do smarter, this? he would have done it at the end of 1998 for New Year's for 99, but he didn't. But okay. That's very fair. <laughs> so why did he do this, Keith? Well, similar to the Taylor situation, um, he did not own his master recordings that were with Warner Music, and he was signed to Warner Brothers Records in the 70s. All of his all of his albums were on Warner Brothers Records up until the basically the mid-90s, and he was f- always famously at odds with Warner towards the end of his time with them, and he he wanted to have ownership of his master recordings, and he could not get that from Warner. They did not want to give that to him because record labels usually don't want to give up things that make them money. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to re-record my entire catalog, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to record all my albums, all my songs, and I'm going to make the money off of it. And basically the only thing he did was 1999. He did one song. So I don't know why he didn't do the rest, but we got one song in 1999, and they put it out as... They put it on a little EP. It was called uh, 1999, The New Master. Because you get it. Not only is it a new master recording, but Prince is now the new master of his own mm-hmm. recording. Get it? Because Warner isn't the master. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and it sounds similar to the original 1999, um, but it's not the same. That's it's a 17-year difference in when it was originally recorded in 1982. It- it also sounds 81. like he was using some of the original vocals from the original recording, mm. so it kind of makes you think, like, are you sampling yourself? It's hard to yeah. tell, anyway. <laughs> well, I was going to say that that is, you know, a, a large gap in time, but uh, another example that Keith brought up was um, Def Leppard, and I remember this one. They were re-recorded sound-alike versions of their own huge 80s songs, uh, Pour Some Sugar on Me and Rock of Ages, and put them out as, like, independent artists. Um, yeah. And there is when you go on on streamers now, do you just hear those sound alike versions or no, are the they, real they, versions out there? Yeah. So they did this in 2012 when they couldn't come to terms with Universal Music, which had their catalog 
on i think they couldn't agree on sort of the their revenue of like how much they would earn off of digital plays and digital purchases so i i they had those up and then they finally figured out something and now their whole catalog is up on digital services they may still be up like the 2012 versions may still be up somewhere i mean i found i found pour some sugar me and rock of ages both on youtube so you can find them out there still Mm. you know another i saw a few people talking online about how um with taylor's new song if you say like you know alexa play uh love story you're gonna get the original version you have to say play love story taylor's version to get her updated version and i wonder that seems like something that taylor would love if they would you know point to the new version (laughs) but i don't really know who makes that sort of decision you know taylor swift does i'm sure she can call up (laughs) Amazon right now and make that change. (laughs) Call up Jeff Bezos right now. Um, Anyway, this is all very fascinating. I think that um, I think that the uh, true service to fans is the fact that we're going to get six brand new songs in April. Um, And there was a 19 songs on the original deluxe version of Fearless, but there were 20 songs on this version plus the new six. So 26 altogether. The one that was uh, not included on the original Fearless track list was Today Was a Fairy Tale, which was on the Valentine's Day soundtrack. But Taylor knows that she likely recorded that and it got cut from Fearless. She she probably recorded it during the Fearless sessions and then was like, oh, y'all need a soundtrack song? Like, here's this, you know, Lucy that didn't make it onto, um, onto Fearless. So it's this cool time capsule that we're getting as well of like all the things that she made during those sessions. So I'm excited for, for that part portion of it and moving forward with the new re-recorded albums. I'm super interested to see what happens when she gets there to the more um, sort of technologically advanced pop dance tracks. Like, how are you going to recreate? I knew you were trouble. Like, I, I mean, I'm sure she will because she said that she will. Yeah. But um, you know, it's one thing to do love story again, which is already, you know, it's 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 a lot of acoustic instruments. Pretty pared down, yes. Yeah, but um, you know, that's like that's the problem of like doing and like if you go listen to the pour some sugar on me versions, it's hard to recreate that incredibly layered uh, sound that Mutt Lang pulled off with pour some sugar on me and whatever it was, 87 or 86 versus what Def Leppard could do on their own in 2012 without the producer's help. Well, so to be fair, I think Taylor will probably like spare no expense to. I'm sure the, Max the Martin very will be getting a phone call people. any minute if he already hasn't yes. already. Exactly. One one tiny little final note. I'm wondering if she will reference all of this at all at the Grammys, which are March 14th. Fearless is coming out April 9th. We don't know yet, but I'm assuming she will perform. And I wonder if she'll sneak something in there. You know, a new a new version of one of those songs, one of the unreleased songs, in addition to obviously nodding to Folklore, which will be nominated that night. But we'll have to, I guess, wait and see on that front. Maybe the Grammys this year just gives everybody like 10 minute performance slots and just says, do what you want. Whatever. Whatever. We can't just, produce a show. It's a pandemic. Just send us 10 minutes. We'll the slot isn't you in. Gonna be here. We're just happy anyone's going to tune in. Oh. <laughs> All right, well, now it's time for the chart stat of the week. Ah! 
Now, with the sudden passing of the Supremes co-founding member, Mary Wilson, on February 8th at 76 years old, uh, we thought we'd take a look at the legacy of the Supremes on the Hot 100 and the Billboard 200 charts. It so, is an epic legacy. It's, it's nuts. And I just think for a moment, if you're a fan of girl groups, like I am, like <laughs> Katie certainly is, mm-hmm. Before there were groups like Little Mix, Girls' Generation, Spice Girls, Blackpink, Sugar Babes, Fifth Harmony, TLC, SWV, In Vogue, The Saturdays, Bananarama, Escape, Destiny's Child. There was the Supremes. And yes, there were girl groups before the Supremes, but arguably it was the Supremes that defined what a girl group could mean artistically, culturally, and commercially after their success in the 1960s. The group's best-known lineup consisted of Florence Ballard, Diana Ross, and Mary Wilson, and they joined Motown Records in 1961, but they were so unsuccessful initially that they earned the in-house nickname at Motown of the No-Hit Supremes. Come on, guys. It's like such a such a jerk thing, but, you know, maybe it was motivation. That changed dramatically in 1964 when the trio landed their first number one hit with Where Did Our Love Go? It was the first of 12 number ones for the group, still the most number ones ever by an American group on the Hot 100. In the 1960s, they earned 18 top 10s on the Hot 100, the most of any American act, and second overall to the Beatles, 30 top 10s that decade. And the same goes for number ones in the 1960s. The Supremes racked up all 12 of their leaders in that decade, second again only to the Beatles, 18. Um, By the way, the Fab Four has a total of 20 number ones, which is, of course, a record. Uh, They had two more number ones in the 1970s. The Supremes also tallied three number one albums on the Billboard 200 with The Supremes' Go-Go in 1966, Dinah Ross and The Supremes' Greatest Hits in 1967, and TCB, a collaborative album with fellow Motown group The Temptations in 1969. The lineup changed over the years, including Ballard departing in 1967 and being replaced by Cindy Birdsong, and Ross leaving in 1970, replaced by Gene Terrell, Wilson was the only constant until the group disbanded in 1977. Even after Ross left, the act accrued 14 further Hot 100 hits, including a pair of top tens. Just two days before her death, Wilson posted a YouTube video on February 6th talking about how she was working with Universal Music, which owns Motown Records, to reissue her 1979 solo album along with previously unreleased material and even new recordings. Oh, they better still be doing that. Um, it sounds like we need to be dropping an email over to Universal Music soon. Um, well, there you have it. Uh, a brief look back at the Supremes' supreme history on the charts. Right. We've reached the end of our show. Uh, any parting words, Katie? I just feel like it has to be... I think it would be surprising to most people if you told them to guess the American group. We're not talking girl group, American group with the most number ones and second only to the Beatles in that decade. Like that is, I don't think people would guess that. So, you know, Mary, Mary has a great legacy. She does. Um, what, uh, what song should we go out on Katie? I mean, we could do some more Supremes. Yes. Sure. I mean, they got 12 number ones. <laughs> I mean, wh- wh- which uh do you have an do you have an early fave like baby love where did our love go uh come see about um, me i don't know uh uh give me a second because my brain just went blank 
what's you keep me hanging on is that what it's called yeah set me free why don't you babe <laughs> get on my That's life on, why don't you babe i mean obviously it became a huge hit in the 80s as well um was it a rare Bananarama? instance of a, of a number one hit going to number one again by a different artist because kim wilde covered it in the 1980s and took it to number one i i straight up just said bananarama so i'm glad thank you for correcting me but um well, bananarama uh, also took an old song that was number one and took it back to number one they covered venus which was number one in two different times for two different artists Yes, um, I just I feel like you keep me hanging on sounds like a super modern song to this day, like coming from the 60s. So I love that song so much. Let's play that one. We'll go out on that and we'll see you guys next time. Bye.